your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's just me today as the regular co-host James Fox. My partner is off this week because his family welcomed in another youngin. Logan Albert Fox was born late last week. So congratulate James and his family. You could do that at JamesFox917 on Twitter. Give him a hey, how are you? And it also signifies to me that you're listening to this episode. But more, it's more about James Fox and his family. So congratulations, James and Teresa. We're all so happy for you. We, as in me and you, have some things to get to related to the White Sox minor league, specifically within AA Birmingham this week, as I welcomed on Kurt Bloom, the voice of the Barons. We're going to hear from him in just a hot second as there's a handful of prospects that I was curious about, as well as maybe a, a rule change or two that is being implemented across AA. So we're going to get perspective on somebody who's been watching AA baseball in the Southern League all month long. It's nice to say that we're about a month into the regular season already. This is May. So now things are going to pick up a little bit. We're seeing promotions across the affiliates. Yolbert Sanchez is in Charlotte now. We touch on Yolbert in the interview upcoming with Kurt because that is a future White Sox starting second baseman if I've ever seen one. And that could come as soon as this year. He needs to jump in the 40-man mix, but that shouldn't be too much of an issue if that really does become a, a serious thing, which I believe it will at some point this year. Yolbert has done everything right, and Kurt will provide firsthand perspective on what he's seen from the player on a day-to-day basis. So that's exciting. We're going to get into the manager a little bit as well. Now, something that's a little bit underrated about Justin Jershley is he's been across the White Sox organization as a manager. He's worked with a lot of players that have, one, graduated, or two, have moved up in the system along with Jershley. He worked in single A. Now he's in double A. He also spent time in triple A. So This is somebody who is very locked into the heart of the organization. And there's a couple of nuggets in there that excited me. And I hope it excites you as well. Now, I'm just previewing the interview. I could tell all day long about how great the interview was. But you'll just have to listen for yourself. That's upcoming right now. First, before we get there, though, I have to make this very clear. That Future Socks and Socks Machine are partners. We are now broadcasting through the Blue Wire Network, so please search Future Socks. I mean, you found us. So if you could like and subscribe this episode and continue listening to the episodes that we have, I mean, just check out our library. I think the portfolio speaks for itself. So please give us a chance. And if you like what you hear, come on back for more. Also, I may, uh, I got to do this as well. Consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash socks machine to sign up because it'll help us out. And by the way, if you sign up to the socks machine, Patreon, you won't have to hear any ads in the episodes across our podcasting platform. That's right. If that's not enough to sign up for exclusive content, then maybe some videos, some one-on-one interviews, some unique insight that only Patreon subscribers 
get through Socks Machine. So consider it if you want to. All right, without further ado, here is the interview with Kurt Bloom, the broadcaster for the Birmingham Barons AA affiliate of the Chicago White Sox. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Wonderful now to be joined by Kurt Bloom, the voice of the Birmingham Barons, part of the Birmingham Barons front office. You can follow him at Kurt Bloom, the number four on Twitter. Kurt, it's always good to talk to you. Have we had this? Have we had a conversation before on the Future Sox podcast? I can't remember. I love the name Future, but it was in the past. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So in, in a past podcast, we, we have been connected. Usually I do one possibly two a year. And I'm, I'm always, I love being a part of it. I love talking Barons, baseball, White Sox, whatever it is. This is going to be a fun one because the Barons are entertaining. As we look at where they stand at the beginning of the season here, we're through April. We're looking at individual performances and there's a lot that I want to get to, especially with the promotion of Yolbert Sanchez. You saw a lot of him last year, as well as the beginning of this season. And also Mike Adolfo. I want to pick your brain on Mike a little bit. But let's start here. I'm curious, uh, you know, a, a lot of people are just the future of the game of baseball and Major League Baseball is implementing some rule changes. They're doing experimentations in the minor leagues and in Birmingham, specifically within the double A. I'm and I want to get this right. There is an infield restriction, right? Like the heels of the infielders cannot leave the infield dirt. Did I get that right? And you can't shift past the second base bag. Can you just explain what the rule changes are in double A that you're seeing and how it's affecting the game? You mentioned it, but I don't think you put it in significance. The, no, the most significant thing is you have to have two infielders on the left of second, two infielders on the right side. Okay. Now be careful with that word shift because they could still shift, but they just can't get over the bag and put three on the right side or three on the left side. So as close as I've seen so far this year, a couple of strides uh, on the infield dirt, a couple of strides to the left of second or to the right of second, depending on who's batting. And yeah, um, you got to have uh, you, you you could you have to start with your cleats on the infield, and then you can as the pitch is delivered and and play happens. Obviously, you move on uh, to whatever is you know when, when the ball's in play. How do you feel like that's working out so far? Have you seen a difference? That's a good question. Um, I don't like banning the shift because I think we failed to compensate for that. So, you know, be smarter than the shift. And today's player is, for the majority of them, the technical uh, word that they're not smart enough to hit the ball the opposite way. And I just don't get it. 
And um, I got into a discussion, not argument, discussion with my manager about that. And he goes, CB, it's not easy. And then I just watched the Yankees uh, Royals game. And George Brett said, if I played right now, I'd hit 600. He goes, I could put every ball on the left side. So that's to me a, a failure to communicate is we implement something. Someone was smarter and started probably with Tampa Bay. They were smarter and they said, we're going to take it away. Why, why can't we go and just hit the ball the opposite way every time? Is it working? Has it created more hits? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think the players are yet adjusted to it. It's only been two weeks, and I don't, I don't see – if you can hit opposite way, you can hit opposite way. If you can pull, you can pull. So I don't see a major adjustment this early. I think perhaps if you check later on back in, uh, maybe they'll have a half a season to get used to it. But no, uh, don't see a major difference at this point, except that the fielders <laughs> visibly look different than they did the previous couple of years. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm, this is a larger conversation for another day. I wonder how the players are thinking because I was listening to some perspective that was gathered by Theo Epstein and he mentioned that the players are excited about having the game put back into their own hands aside from just putting them like by the manager in the spot in which they expect the ball to go and a lot of the time they do see it that way however you know this is more of a hitters thing you know you want the ball in play and you want hitters on base and, and more action and I just wonder just the general philosophies behind Major League Baseball and what they're trying to do is, is the retention rate and trying to keep people interested in the game. And from that, let's let's stick right there. And you did mention the, the manager, and I want to ask you about Justin Gershley here in a second. But thinking about what's to come in the future, your perspective, and I'm not sure if you've seen any of it, but there's a pitch clock on the horizon. And I just wonder if you've heard anything from players or anybody within the game that you're hearing either way, positive or negatively. Well, they're, they're aware of it, and you know, here's the thing about the pitch clock, okay? If you have good pitching, then the pitch clock comes into play. If your pitcher can't throw strikes, pitch clock means nothing. So the first nine games, that was the three-game homestand, six-game road trip, the Barons really struggled with pitching, an ERA of five and something, six and something out of a bullpen nine. So I don't care if you have an hourglass or you have a stopwatch. It didn't make a difference. If you throw strikes, then it will make a difference. Interesting, when the Barons started pitching well this last series up in Madison, then games were coming below three hours. And, and let me make this perfectly clear. For me, I'm all for, I don't care how you do it, but I'm all for speeding up the pace of the game. There's no reason the game should take three hours. Uh, you're going to lose everybody. Um, young fans, old fans, broadcasters, players. And so whatever it takes to speed it up. So to answer your question, if you don't pitch well, the pitch clock doesn't mean anything. If you do pitch well, then that means a batter, you know, I saw one, the, I just saw a replay the other day, a batter stepped out um, and got called a strike on him. Yeah, this is, uh, is going to be something that I'm sure Major League Baseball will tinker with, but we'll see it. And I really appreciate the perspective there. And I, I'm in large part in agreement with you because so much of the nothing in the game that draws users away is the batter stepping out of the box, the pitcher readjusting himself on the mound. It, 30 seconds, 45 seconds go by and nothing happens. And it just, it's, it's terrible. But I hear you. You get into a rhythm, you see pitchers working quickly, or you see just batters 
step out of the box, back in quickly. That's how the game gets better, in my opinion. And along those lines, yeah, you were were hitting on that too. So you mentioned Justin Jersley, the manager. How's it like working with him again? And, And what's it been like seeing the product on the field with him on the bench? I couldn't ask to work for a better staff, and he's the head of the staff. And I tell you, last year, uh, in my entire baseball career was certainly the hardest ever challenging, challenging, because as you know, broadcasters and media, not only we were, uh, were we not allowed in the clubhouse, which is where you do your work, but we couldn't even get on the field until the second half of the year. And you talk about challenging, but through all that, Jersley texted us the lineup every day, texted us all the moves, stayed in touch. Uh, we might have, as long as we don't have cameras recording and anybody uh, looking back last year, we might have broken a rule or two every now and then. Um, but he made it so simple. And I just can't imagine uh, other broadcasters, if they have challenging managers, uh, how they got through last year. And so to have him back this year, um, you know, finally to get to get into a locker room, uh, to get into his office and get perspective every day is a lot of fun. You know, we're almost, not quite, but we're almost back to normal. And I was thinking about this uh, a few days ago. You know, I don't want to put him in a big league uniform as a manager. He's 32 years old. But to to see him ascend to the big leagues as a major league coach in a short time is is definitely reality. Um, He has done some things already maybe little things in a game or just the attitude of how and what he says that it's amazing how he relates to these players. Um, You know, they look at him, they're not much younger than him. uh, And they respect the fact that he himself was not a great player, but he grinded and made everything out of it. And remember he comes from a, a, a great baseball family. His father, Mike, was in my in minor league ball for over over thirty years before he finally got uh, promoted to the Royals during their World Series run. Yeah, that is great to hear. First of all, and I love to hear that he's making your life much easier. There's so much there, but I got to stick on, on the future big league manager aspect of Jersley because he's been a part of the White Sox organization for several years, and he's managed across many different affiliates. So now at the Double A level, you know this is sort of the bridge for a lot of players, whether they can take that next step and be a major leaguer or not. And Jershley is around a lot of these top prospects that we're going to get to here in a little bit. It's interesting that you bring up the the communication aspect, and I'd like to poke at that a little bit further. What is it about Jershley as a manager that works so well uh, resonating with professional players, hitters, fielders? What is it about his style as a manager works? Uh, He's extremely honest. He treats them like men. You know, he's a younger version of my mentor, Tito Francona. All the things I say about Jersey, I said about Tito uh, 30 years ago. So I'll give you an example. Craig Didolo uh, had a, a wonderful game uh, uh, about a week ago, came up and did a post-game show. And he was telling me, because he had a day off, then a left-handed pitcher, which is strange because Didolo is a left-handed batter. And I asked him about that. And he said, he is the one who said on the post-game show, he said, look, I give all credit to Jershley. He needed to give me a mental day off. I took it. I came back. He wound up with two hits, a home run and some other stuff. So um, 
he has an incredible way of getting through to them in a very, very honest way. And I think the toughest thing to do as a manager, a young manager, and I saw that with uh, the early Francona uh, and then um, Julio Venus and um, others, and, and now Jersley, it, it, how do you decide that you're no longer a player and you're now their boss? You know, you now, and, and that's the tough part, but he's done an incredible job. Um, he knows, everybody in that locker room knows that he will fight for them. Um, if there's a bad call, if there's something wrong, he's out there arguing and, and re, uh, wanting and representing what's best for the player, not for him or his own promotion, but trying to get the best. And in his case, Mike, he gets the best out of um, not only the top nine guys who are in the lineup, but the last guy on the bench making him feel ready. And I've talked to the last guy on the bench and that guy says, Jersey has kept me ready every single game. As a manager in double A and across minor league baseball, it's interesting to evaluate guys and to hear that brings a lot of confidence in, in my eyes because, you know, obviously a manager, you can grade a manager in the big leagues just by wins and losses, but that's not necessarily the case in the minors. You want to see how players respond and how they develop mostly while also trying to put their teams in the best position to win without really compromising the development of these players. So it seems like Jershley is that total package. And, and the fact that he's a great communicator with the media relations department, soft spot, just have to say that. Uh, all right, let's move on a little bit here, Kurt, to some of the players that I want to highlight. Really good stuff on Jersey. That's exciting. Gilbert Sanchez started the season in AA this year. We were expecting him to take the next step to Charlotte, but I don't think, or at least here at Future Sox, speaking for myself personally, I didn't expect him to jump up that quickly now in AAA, and he's still hitting. And we knew coming into last season when he got called up initially to the Birmingham Barons that he could, he could flash the glove a little bit. He can hold his own defensively. But now we're seeing an all-around complete player. It, it sure does seem like to me, just looking at the highlights, what did you see on the field from Gilbert Sanchez? Well, you got to remember he's, he's 25 years old, so this is not 20-year-old Jose Rodriguez. This is five years older, more mature. And the fact that he had a half a season with the Barons last year in terms of Yolbert, and, and look at his numbers. He had 350 last year. So all he did was pick up where he left off. He's mature. Uh, he's ready. And I think what is developing now is his ability to understand the culture and understand what's expected of him in only what is his, what, second year here in the States, third year in the States. And that, that goes a long, long way. And I've had a lot of conversations about Jersey, or with Jersey rather, about uh, Gilbert and his understanding of the culture, the expectations, the routine. These are all, you and I have no idea what life is like growing up in Cuba. No idea whatsoever. He does. And now that he's accepted it, he's obviously taking off. Yeah, that's a, it's somewhat of an understated point. And uh, not a lot of people think that way. And the White Sox are building a strong heap of prospects through the international market. And we see it from Cuba and the Dominican Republic. You mentioned Jose Rodriguez, another example of a player who is really taking stride. As a 20-year-old, you mentioned the age. How is he holding up in double A right now? If you look at the batting average, you're going to be a little disappointed. Um, but you have to look at the at-bats and his ability to put the bat on the ball. Um, he certainly got strength. Power will develop. 
And I was talking to a scout uh, last week and the scout said, look, uh, no matter what his numbers are, we're not looking at that. What we're looking at is a 20-year-old in double-A. Um, and that is really, really pushing it. Uh, and that shows you, again, his maturity um, and the, the, the fact that this, this okay, it, it happens once in a while, you know, not very often that you can have a kid, but it's obviously somebody who the organization thinks can not only be a ball player, but an impact player. Uh, at the big league level. Eloy was 21, and I got to look at how old uh, Luis Robert was. I think 21 also. Uh, and Jose, is, he's 20. And that would mean, just think about this for a moment. He would be a sophomore, maybe a junior, probably a junior in college right now. Um, and yet he's got, I don't know, 1,000 at-bats, 600 at-bats, whatever it is, in professional ball. So they're very excited. And, and if there was a day where the White Sox said, nah, you know, we're not, we're not interested in him anymore. Believe me, there are 29 clubs that would grab him uh, at the, at the blink uh, of an eye. Now you talk about the maturity and the fact that he's able to stand up against the competition at age 20. What about the skill set? What flashes when you watch him play? Line drives, everyday approach. Um, I don't, I don't need a guy to have a big, long swing if that's not his game, and he doesn't. And the versatility of I'm still trying to figure out, is he our best second baseman, our best shortstop, or our best third baseman? And typically what you do is you, you have um, – this is what I was taught back in the Tim Anderson days. You put your best athlete and you put your, your prospect at short until he plays himself out. Okay. Now, if he could play short, then obviously that range is going to help at second where he's made some great plays. Um, and then at third base, you need a little arm strength, obviously, as well, uh, and quick reaction. So um, he's not the everyday shortstop, but he plays every day. Yeah, it seems like, you know, whenever we read up on Jose Rodriguez, we see free swinger, but it's not the swing and miss. It's curious to me, you know, when you hear free swinger, you see somebody who's taking wild, loud swings, but it seems like he, he has a lot of bat-to-ball skill. He does, and, and I don't think he'd be here if they didn't think that. If he had wild swings, then he would be working in a ball in Winston and, you know, perhaps putting up gaudy numbers. No, I see a, a lot of bat-to-ball skills, and the interesting thing about the, uh, the Latin contingent uh, for a lack of a better way of putting it, they all, they're very, very similar. You throw uh, Joel Cespedes in there, uh, Sanchez Rodriguez and Lenin Sosa, and they all very similar. They all play, Cespedes, of course, a center fielder, but the other three guys play second, short, and third. They all are really good bat-to-ball contact guys, not looking to overpower. One more statement, and I, and, and I think all three of these guys know this. This is a Marcus Simeon trick that he taught me. He said, you look the other way and you trust your hands inside. All right. That is what these three guys plus Cespedes, they do a really good job at their young stage going to right center field. So when I, if I looked at my score sheet, you'd see um, – an underline nine, underline eight, underline nine. That means single to right, single to center, single to right. Okay, we don't we don't need anybody that's trying to hit the board over the uh, uh, the ball over the scoreboard at twenty years old and trying to learn how to you know, get accustomed to uh, the heat and the travel and the grind and all that stuff.
And, and all of them, all of them have done a really nice job. That is wonderful perspective in just understanding a professional approach, especially those who are young in the league. Yep. That's what you want to hear. Now you brought them up. You woke Cespedes. Are you watching a big leaguer right now? Yeah, absolutely. I won't put him in center field for the White Sox because the White Sox have potentially a 10-year all-star if they keep him on the field in Luis Robert. Um, and that size and package doesn't come along uh, often. I, I think Cespedes, because of his arm strength and his speed, uh, could play in the, in the big leagues in right field. I was talking to a couple of other scouts. Right now, here's the thing. If the Sox needed a guy, which they don't, but if they needed a guy to go up there for a 10-day IL for somebody, he would not embarrass you. Okay, Is he ready to contribute to a pennant-winning upper-level claim, uh, uh, club and team? No, not yet. But he is not going to embarrass you with his skill set. A um, lot of fun and a lot of maturity. What I really, really enjoyed about him is when we poke fun of him and talk about his brother, he makes it clear with a smile. He goes, he's Joannis. I am Joelki. So he wants it to be known. You know, I know my brother was a great player. I think there's a part of him that says, Mike, I think he says, I'm not going to waste these God-given tools. And I, I got to work a little harder. My brother was bigger, much physically bigger. But what I got, I'm going to give you every day. So uh, am I looking at a big leaguer? I, I, know, I know every club would take him. Uh, and, and he's going to be in the big leagues. Projection is a little harder, uh, but perhaps by the end of the year, we look at his numbers. I also would expect a late season promotion up to Charlotte just to get him some AAA pitching. Remember, he also had a great big league camp. Right. And last year really was his first full professional season stateside. That's crazy when you think about that. That really is. You mentioned earlier with a guy like Gilbert Sanchez, he's older. Uh, in Yolki's case, he is also like climbing in age relative to where he's playing. And, you know, he's closer to the big leagues in that regard. However, he, there is still development there. And I want to stick to Yolki quickly because you brought up his half-brother, Ioannis. It's hilarious when you put them side by side and you watch the top half of their swing, just their top half. It is almost identical. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, they're built the same way. They're followed throughs the same way. However, if you could break down the player in Yoelki as a hitter and what you see in the outfield, and you, you, you ran through it briefly, just athletically, how does he move and, and what do you see out of his swing? Well, let me do the measurements first. He's 5'9", 205. And I'm not looking at the height of Yoannis, but I will tell you that he would thicker. And I know a couple of people that were around him. He had massive shoulder and back muscles. Okay. Um, so Joel Key is not built like that, uh, but he certainly has the tool set that the, he's the kind of guy that you might fall asleep during a game waiting for him to do something because of his name. And because you know, the talent is there. And then when you put him to sleep, you say, ah, he really didn't have a, a good game. He'll make this incredible running catch, uh, great range in center, or he'll drive the ball late in the game with guys on base. And, and a lot of times that's, that's going to be uh, to right center field, maybe off our fence uh, that I'm looking at right now from the press box. So there's a, 
there's a it's a fun skill set. If you just focused on the four uh, on his four at bats and watching him in the field, you'll see something every night that goes, you know, that's a little special, a little different. And again, talking to him uh, occasionally, you, you could see and feel the desire is there to be successful. So I want to take you to a, a player that you watched a lot last season and not so much this year, but you have a pretty good idea of the type of player that he is, and that's Mike Rodolfo. And we've been following him since he signed on with the White Sox since 2013. And he's had a really difficult road. A lot of it, 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 he can't control what happened in 2020. None of us can. But that really did hurt his trajectory. And that was like a key season for him to get minor league at-bats. And here we saw the White Sox DFA him. He cleared waivers. Now he's back in Charlotte. But you got a chance to watch him go from, all right, I haven't played. I got to get my timing back in 2021 gets promoted to Charlotte that season as well. In that brief time that you did see Adolfo, what were the impressions? I always, if you continue to interview me and ask me questions, I always start with the character of the person. And this is one of the most loving guys in any organization. He's one of the great teammates of all time. Uh, At constant smile, um, who uh, infects everybody around him. um, And, Early in 21, there was swing and miss, no doubt, because that's the rust. That was where the, um, the fact, the layoff and the injuries. And then once he got his timing down, that swing, the thing called the, my swing, uh, then he was a wrecking crew. And again, his, his power to the opposite field is like Eloy and Luis and his pull power you know, fastball belt high is, is going to go over our scoreboard. And I mean, you're talking 440, 450 feet. Great throwing arm. Remember the, the, the first time that he came up with us, um, he only DH because he was coming off a of Tommy John surgery. I, I will say this. I, I want to continue on here for a second. I am beyond shocked that a club didn't take a look at him, a, a lower level club uh, right now, the Reds, the Pirates. Um, so I don't really know what goes on behind scenes, but I, I, I got to hope and think that there was some posturing in a, in a sense like, look, we can't keep him in the big leagues, but you don't touch him. We won't touch your guy. OK, I mean, that's just me with a with a fantasy. But there is no doubt when he left us, the game was complete. And the, the swing and miss got less. He was recognizing his only uh, drawback because of all the missed years and missed at bats was re- pit, uh, pitch recognition, recognizing what and where. Once he focuses and gets set, like it's either going in this zone or I'm not swinging, uh, or I, I th- this will be a breaking ball count, you know, whatever it is like that. Um, pitch recognition was the only thing missing. Power, strength. Um, likability, all that stuff was all there. And again, I, I'm going to say this. I cannot believe Cincinnati's three and whatever, 16, 17, and they didn't want to take a chance. Baltimore is going nowhere. They didn't want to take a chance. I, I'm shocked. Pick them up, give them a shot for a month. And if you don't like it, DFA them again, like, you know, like others have been. I'm with you. I think this is a this is a big leaguer and this is somebody that yeah, sooner or later is going to emerge and, and teams are going to be kicking themselves for not taking a shot at him. I want to take you to a couple of pitchers 
First, Yuelvin Sylvan. I want to make sure I said that correctly. Mm -hmm. Yep. This is his third season stateside, and he's taken a step every year since he's been with the White Sox. What can you tell me about Sylvan? Throws hard. Um, Let me look at, uh, I I actually have a a Sylvan uh, pitching chart. So, yeah, it's fastball slider change. Throws hard. Um, like, Like any pitcher we've had the last few years, it doesn't matter if it's him or the new guy, Yohan Ibar, uh, fill in the blank, uh, Severino, you know, throw strikes. And early this season, that's what he's been able to do is throw strikes. When he does and he stays in the strike zone, it's hard to hit. And he can move the ball around a little bit. Um, not a big body guy at all. Uh, kind of a, uh, a Pedro Martinez-ish, if you will. Um, and that that that's... That's uh, he's a little bit taller, but not much thicker. And then, uh, you know, he doesn't have that big, large frame that you would think would be able, uh, able to generate that kind of uh, uh, whip and that kind of speed. But um, uh, definitely an interesting uh, guy to keep an eye on. Uh, I've seen a lot of guys come in and come out over the last X amount of years. Um, certainly, he's going to go to Charlotte at some point. And we'll see how he does against good competition, not good, but experience rather, uh, some MLB guy competition. I want to see that. That'll be a good test for him. Uh, but arm strength is something you cannot teach. You either got it or you don't. And another, this time a starter, Jason Billis, was added to the White Sox 40-man roster. And maybe some of that had to do with protecting the right-hander from the Rule 5 draft, which was wasn't uh, taking place this year, which was interesting. But what have you seen from Jason Billis? Is he a future starter? Do you think uh, he's got enough stuff in his repertoire to pitch and get big league hitters out or even triple A hitters out? I believe his, uh, his, his destination is actually where he is, which is in the rotation. It's been a mystery for the last two years of why, why the numbers aren't matching the talent. And that when that gets unleashed and that gets um, when that gets discovered, uh, then you got a guy again, a, a, a chance to be. This is not a, a Kopech you know, 99 or Dylan Cease 98 and guys like that, but a guy that certainly has pitchability with four pitches. A smart kid came back from Tommy John. He already got Tommy John out of the way in high school. Uh, so certainly could go up there. Remember, they, they had a parade of pitchers last year. Now Vince Velasquez comes off the, you know, the, the, um, off the streets to start throwing. Well, Billis has got, I think it's, it starts with gaining the confidence with a pitcher over the years, what I've seen and what I've noticed, they give batters too much credit. And when Billis becomes an animal and says, you know, screw you, I'm going to own this strike zone and, and I'm going to own this at bat. He's got four pitches that are really good, okay? There are times when there are guys on base or a situation doesn't go well where I think the confidence level drops slightly and he's, you know, uh uh-oh, I can't make a mistake here. Well, that eventually, through time, that will take care of, and I I do think they have uh, a starter um, in progress, but not not yet. Go up again. Let's go up to AAA, get him – uh, a good 10 starts at the end of this year and and look at his numbers and see uh, how well he pitched there. Boy, four pitches. I like to hear that as a starter. That's good stuff. Kurt, last thing before we let you go. I can't end this interview without asking you about Michael Jordan. 
<laughs> did you do you have something for us? Do you have something for the future Sox listener covering that player? I don't think I can go a week without somebody asking me. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. I got my answers. I, I, I got my answers pretty much uh, in Beautiful. the uh, memory book. You know, I'll leave you with one of my favorite stories. Um, during the during the season itself, April, May, June, July, we had a lot of really good athletes, like every every year does. And we played a lot of Sunday day games, and there were hoop courts in uh, Hoover. Okay, remember, we're no longer playing in Hoover, but there were hoop courts in Hoover, just a, a local uh, neighborhood. And our guys would, would play after Sunday Barons games. It's still light until like 8 o'clock, so they had plenty of time to uh, go out and play pickup. And they were egging Michael on the whole time. And sure enough, one day in August, early August, here comes the Mercedes with the JJ and the MJ license plate. Um, his wife at the time and him, and um, and he was decked out, ready to play ball. You know, it, it, to the rest of the story, I still, every time I talk about it, I hesitate because I, I wonder, did it really happen? But I was there, so it did. Anyways, through some stroke of luck, which I still have no idea with, why, when, how, we played pickup, and I was on his team. And uh, I set as it's known around the South as the bone crunching pick. The pick, it's called, they call it the pick. So the ball comes to him in the beginning and I'm six foot and, and a, a slender 170. And he's six, six and well-built 230, whatever. And I, I pick his man and, and he looked down on me and he waved it off and he said, CB, I don't need that. And then he took one step back and drained about a 30 footer game on. Let's go. My favorite, one of my favorite stories of all time. Uh, it, it, it will never get old for me to tell that story either. <laughs> and I thank you for asking. No, thank you for sharing. This is a treat for everybody listening. And uh, we, we really appreciate your time. Boy, we could do this for hours, honestly, Kurt. You're I know so- I can. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just going. I, it's Get another water in me and I'm good to go. <laughs> we, well, there's more opportunity this season, thankfully. And I, it you know, it's a beautiful thing. And there's more to get to, especially when you bring up the fact that 2022 seems to be a little bit more normal as what we were used to prior to the pandemic. So that sounds great. Thanks so much for your time, Kurt. We'll talk to you again soon. It was my absolute pleasure. Have a wonderful summer. Now I was bugging Kurt on his off day and across minor league baseball, Mondays are off days, but I could (laughs) have, I didn't want to take up all of his time, but I could have talked to him for over an hour, uh, probably more than that because you just get a baseball feel like the instincts are there. When you hear some of the stuff that he's relaying to us, the inside perspective, when you, when you talk and live in the game, as long as Kurt has, you, you pick up on things that are idiosyncratic because they're unique to his experiences, but he lives in the baseball world. And here I am speaking in all these generalizations, but man, when you, when you start to understand the professional baseball player, understanding what it means to get to the next level, to have success at what is arguably the most challenging level in minor league baseball, and then to move on to that next level. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. And I think the unique perspective, too, that he provided regarding international signings, playing in the minors stateside, and doing the things mentally, their character, a lot of those things go maybe unnoticed, but it's there. 
I feel like the White Sox have a nice foundation that they built on high character athletes, at least what it seems so far. We we talked in, in length last week in, in episodes prior regarding Brian Ramos. Ramos is a really good example. We heard Lorenzo Bundy, the manager of the Dash, discuss his work ethic. You know, here I am going back to Brian Ramos, a top 10 prospect. That could possibly be a top 100 guy maybe this summer. Like late this year, maybe he cracks a top 100 list. I can't get ahead of myself on some of these guys because seldom do we see players get promoted and have immediate success. Yolbert Sanchez is an anomaly. And we're seeing Jose Rodriguez get taken down a peg because you know he dominated single A last season. But as a 20-year-old, like Kurt's mentioning, you know, double A ain't no cakewalk, but you're 20 years old playing at this high level of competition. He had to bring up names like Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert when they were around that age playing in that league. So this is uh, some encouraging stuff. And we've been mentioning this as well as we wrap up this episode. I've said this plenty of times already. There are a handful of names in this organization that fans really should be paying attention to. Whether it's guys who are going to make an impact at the big league level for the White Sox or the reality of it is... During the competitive window, the stock is in the young talent. We're talking single A and even some in double A. Take advantage of that talent and getting what you need now. We hate to say goodbye because we want to see the prospects develop under the White Sox umbrella. This is what it is. We as baseball fans understand the realities of the situation. So as we continue to monitor this, just keep it in mind that there is a number of prospects that are definitely worth keeping an eye on. And as we monitor their growth and development, we'll have it for you right here at futuresocks.com, now part of Socks Machine. And this episode is also a part of the Blue Wire Network, so subscribe and like if you can. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. Again, consider becoming a patron to Socks Machine. Go to SocksMachine.com and find out more information there. If you're already a patron, you got this episode ad-free. Thanks so much for your continued dedication and support. We're going to have more for you all season long. Go to futuresocks.com for all of your needs. Until next time, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in.